Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of economics, psychology, politics, history, and science. I'm Seth Rosenblatt. And I'm Mark Olbert. You know, Mark, when we did our Warts and All episode, we talked about the differences between government and business, and specifically that people kept asking why government doesn't act like a business. I like to think we did a pretty good job laying out why government isn't like a business and generally shouldn't act like one. Yes, but we also teased a more specific complaint that we said we'd tackle on a future podcast. Why governments are often accused of waste. And I think that's tied up with people not really understanding the notion of efficiency. Yeah, so let's delve deeper into the notions of efficiency and waste in a government context. Seth, I think we better define our terms because the word waste is thrown around so much that it can mean different things to different people. And it's often, I think, in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, absolutely. I think about it in kind of three categories of potential waste. The first is what I'll call just generally poor financial management, specifically just spending more than you need to for the value of goods and services you're purchasing. I think of the second category as like spending money on things that really aren't needed at all by any sort of reasonable or objective measure. And that is often the result of some form of corruption. And I think category three is spending money on initiatives where there isn't a universal consensus on the objective. <laughs> one of my favorite government aphorisms is one person's irrelevancy is another's vital public need. The notion of value is itself kind of fuzzy or ill-defined for much public spending because there may not be and often isn't any kind of marketplace within which the goods can be traded off against each other. If you don't have a marketplace, you can't get an objective price, and that means you can't make an objective trade-off. That's right. And we have discussed before that we must recognize that objective measures can be difficult or impossible to find when it comes to assessing spending on public assets. It's the assets themselves, you know, like freedom. You know, they don't have an independent objective measurement. This also goes to another topic we discussed in the Warts and All episode. The difficulty of measuring risk and value with initiatives that have a long time frame. That's a general problem in almost all kinds of government decision-making. Yes, there is certainly the principle of hindsight bias going on here. When we analyze government spending, we can see in hindsight how successful some spending initiatives are, and it's easy to use that analysis as something we assumed we knew all along. Unlike private sector organizations, which may assume they'll last forever but rarely do, communities and their governments pretty much do. That's also very different from the private sector. And we can't forget that we know much more about government spending and initiatives as they are generally public, unlike many business transactions which are not visible by design. So we'll get into more details on that. Let's start with the first category of potential waste, that of poor financial management. You know, I think the main question here is whether government is prone to more cases of poor financial management than in the private sector. Certainly people think so. I think that the answer, as you would expect, is a bit more complicated than that. Well, let's look at it from a couple different angles. On the one hand, government lacks two critical forces, which in a general sense would seek to reduce poor financial management. And I'm thinking of the profit incentive and I'm thinking of competition, which provides a certain pricing pressure and an active marketplace that provides those trade-offs you mentioned in spending decisions. Well, we've all certainly seen big headlines about government waste. Remember the legend of the $600 hammer that was bought by the Pentagon in the 1980s? Yeah, I absolutely do. And oh, well, I since have learned that story was a bit of an exaggeration as the hammer in question was sort of bundled into this large research and development project. And in the accounting, the research costs were split evenly over every product. So it jacked up the price of the hammer on the manifest, even though the hammer really only cost $15. 
Similar things happen in the private sector all the time, like with the $15 Tylenol pill. I think part of the problem is that when most people think of cost, they think of average cost, which fully allocates all of the costs of offering an item for sale. But the actual cost of offering one more item, which an economist would call the marginal cost, is generally much less. And that supports a lower price and, and leading to much greater profits. Mixing those two things up can lead to really bizarre situations. It's also the basis of one of my favorite accounting aphorisms. For centuries, accountants have been allocating costs to transactions to better characterize them. And for centuries, financial analysts have been backing those allocations out to get back to the real data they need to make decisions. <laughs> That's right. You know, but there are, in fairness, plenty of other stories of governments seemingly overpaying for items, which feels like you and I can get a lot cheaper. I remember you telling me about some trash cans up in San Francisco, some new trash cans that cost like $11,000 each. Yeah, that just happened, I think, this year. You know, it's funny, when I read that article, it reminds me of a line from an Adam Sandler movie, it Just Go With It. I don't know if you've seen it, but in the store... Adam Sandler is told by a saleswoman that a pair of shoes will cost $1,700, you know, and he's flabbergasted and he, he replies, you know, what are they made out of panda? <laughs> so when I read about those trash cans, I was wondering if they were made out of panda. <laughs> yeah. The big question, though, is whether those deluxe garbage cans were truly innovative in some fashion. You know, maybe they lowered the cost of handling trash significantly, but maybe they were just cool looking. Yeah, it's definitely worth asking the question and pressing our public officials to explain why those garbage cans were so damn expensive. But there are many examples of so-called waste where the public's analysis is just flawed and incomplete. Absolutely. You know, one of my favorite examples of this is the criticism we often heard on the San Carlos School Board, which was that our schools spend too much money on, quote, administration, which, of course, was an implication that we spend less on teachers and items in the classroom. And... Putting aside the fact that California actually spends one of the least amounts on school administrative expenses, you know, on a percentage basis compared to all other states, it's actually just a convenient talking point that really has no basis in the reality of how schools function. I will never forget getting into an argument with someone at a dinner party over district administrative costs. The person was angry that some of the money in a proposed parcel tax was earmarked specifically for administration. That shocked me because when I was on the board, we'd always shied away from doing just that because it doesn't play well politically. He grabbed the flyer he'd gotten in the mail and pointed the offending language out to me, which actually said the money to be raised could not be spent on administration. <laughs> right. But he was so sensitive to the issue, he was blind to the word not, and so got himself all upset. And that's right, because he, like many others, sort of uses the word administration as some sort of pejorative. But in reality, it includes the people who develop curriculum in our schools, who train our teachers, deal with special education families, communicate with parents, hire teachers, hire other critical personnel, keep the facilities running. I mean, I can go on and on, right? All these critical tasks. And that's not wasteful spending. It's just something that most consumers of the service don't see or don't think about and so don't tend to appreciate. It's funny, like your uh, encounter with that one fellow who's so sensitive to it, I was also very aware of this. And I remember thinking that I must be the only elected official that in a public meeting would advocate for greater spending on administration, right? Because <laughs> um, I felt like that spending actually had leverage over the whole organization and made everyone better if it was done right. Having every teacher be an expert in, say, dealing with special ed issues would be much more expensive than giving them basic training and hiring a small cadre of highly trained and expensive experts in the field. Some things are just cheaper when you scale them. 
And a related phenomenon is that people often discount the value of services that either they don't see directly or they don't think apply to them. Like many parents undervalued the worth of counselors in our schools if they didn't think their child received direct services from a counselor. But as almost all teachers will tell you, having sufficient number of really good counselors at a school makes everyone else's job more effective. On the city side, we sometimes see people who thought spending money to main someone else's street was a waste, but spending money to maintain their street was vitally important. <laughs> That's right. But we do have to recognize that people understand that, as we mentioned, right, government lacks the profit incentive and a fully fleshed out marketplace. So because of that, government agencies do need to compensate, right, by putting in processes and procedures that at least attempt to reduce waste. Which is one of the reasons, I think, that in most situations, governments are almost always required by law to get multiple bids for large projects. Yes, but despite that, it certainly seems that a lot of public works projects are outrageously expensive. And like our examples earlier, the reason why those projects may seem very expensive could be the result of multiple forces, some of which are actually relatively benign. But I mean, we have to include the ones we just mentioned, were, which are the lack of competition and the lack of a profit incentives. I think also there's a potential for corruption, which we'll talk about in a minute in our second category, for sure. And then there are also things like the uh, political considerations, what used to be called pork barrel spending, done to ensure a project has benefits for enough people so as to get and maintain political support. Or the simple fact that different people may value a project differently, including some people deciding it has no value at all. That's a point, too, that we're going to come back to. And it's also possible that a project is just more complex than it appears on the surface, right? It, including the possibility that there's a project maybe trying to do something that's never been done before. Government projects also often need to be successful no matter what, which is really different from the private sector where failure is more of an option. If you want to own the roulette table to win no matter where the ball of change lands, you have to place bets on every possible outcome. That's inherently quite expensive. So yes, it's true, there are fewer incentives to lower costs, right, in a government setting for all these reasons. We also have to remember there's the, it's not my money syndrome. That dynamic does also exist in large companies as well, and even in small companies, although it's less common there, I think, because the owners generally tend to run the business. Yeah, speaking of incentives that affect both the public and private sector, particularly larger companies, I think there could be an incentive for any decision maker to actually spend more money on a project because it proves they need to keep this amount on their budget for future years. <laughs> One of my early bosses used to declare the month of December did not exist. He did that because there was always this huge flurry of stuff that we had to get evaluated and analyzed right now. And it was all done just so people wouldn't lose their budget money. Right. Sometimes there is a disincentive to save money. <laughs> but as we discussed also in the warts and all episode, people tend to commonly mix up efficiency and effectiveness when they evaluate government decisions. And we've discussed many times how governments must serve everyone. They must act as an agent to deal with public goods and externalities. And those are by design very hard to measure. And they certainly don't impact everyone equally. Government must also respond to large disruptions. For example, stockpiling vaccines isn't very efficient but it can be extremely important. It's covering the roulette wheel again. We also discussed the firehouse example, where we want our firefighters to be idle for a good part of the day, yeah. or else they'd miss getting to the fire my house, right? But they certainly aren't as efficient in the time and motion study sense. I also think we need to remember that a lot of things that are inefficient, so to speak, in government because we're intentionally making a trade-off for greater openness. Yeah, I think that's definitely underappreciated that how most government meetings, unlike the private sector, are open. Compensation levels are public. 
contracts are public, you know, we can go on. The government's apparent lack of efficiency and flexibility is at least partly due to it being the price we pay for openness. And after all, as these are public institutions funded with tax dollars, who in the world would want to accept less transparency? Particularly since doing so would increase the likelihood of true corruption occurring and thereby actually raising costs. I think I may have mentioned in a previous podcast how I was once approached by a resident of our town asking why the school board couldn't make decisions more quickly. And I jokingly replied, well, we could if you stopped coming to our meetings. <laughs> Representative democracies, at least, must also give everyone an opportunity to comment or lobby about public choices. That can dramatically slow things down and increase costs. So I guess then the question is, is it true that government is a poor financial manager? And I think we just came to the conclusion that the answer is sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I learned from my public service is that the real answer to almost every question about public decisions is it depends. So while none of us should be surprised by poor financial management in the public sector, sometimes it just seems that way because there are issues and considerations we're not personally aware of or which aren't relevant to our personal lives. Now let's move on to the second category of waste and discuss where government spends money unnecessarily and specifically because there's corruption going on. There are plenty of examples of excessive costs resulting from corruption. I mean, the entire city of Bell seems to be a case example of that. In fact, even committed capitalists have an incentive to participate in such corruption because it benefits them, and there is no invisible hand in the marketplace to limit them if they don't get caught at. Be clear what we're talking about, right? Although there are different flavors of corruption, we're really talking about where someone in power uses that power, which is, could be a spending power or otherwise, to gain a benefit for themselves personally, right, or someone close to them, rather than for the institution which they represent. A perfect example of this is that just recently, talking about San Francisco again, the former San Francisco Public Works Director was convicted of multiple crimes right, for essentially taking bribes and kickbacks, right, both cash and goods, from contractors and other firms that he steered city business toward. And this is what I think most people think of as really the worst kind of waste, fraud, and abuse. But they have a long lineage, and not just because they involve self-interest trumping community interest, like in that example. There are times, I would argue, when community failures make corruption inevitable. Consider Tammany Hall, the classic example where you and I both grew up, the New York City area. Tammany Hall was famously corrupt and controlled city politics for a big chunk of the mid-19th century. But they prospered in part because they helped individuals who were poorly represented or not represented at all by the existing public sector. In that sense, they were a result of government not being responsive to community needs, because those responses would have worked against the self-interest of the people then controlling the government, who didn't want to pay taxes to fund services they were well enough off to buy themselves. Tammany Hall took advantage of that vacuum for their own ends. Yeah, I understand that, and I understand that there are many other different examples of this type of behavior, but fundamentally, they're all about betraying the public trust. Even if the betrayal results from the failure of a community to fulfill the obligations its members feel they are due. Now, interestingly, we tend to think that these types of scandals are more prevalent in countries around the world with poor justice systems or autocrats, and I think they certainly can be, but it's worth noting that it does happen everywhere. <laughs> Anytime anyone gets lots of power, there is this temptation for corruption. As Bishop Berkeley famously said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this temptation is greater when people define their, you know, community differently than someone else does or feel they are not part of the larger community because they're somehow disenfranchised. And then, too, sometimes corruption is simply in the eye of the beholder. 
What strikes one person as corruption may be what someone else needs to do simply to survive. So let's go through, you know, some of the bigger examples, right, in U.S. history. You know, I think in right after the Revolutionary War, when, you know, we were negotiating peace with the English, the English negotiators offered a separate deal to U.S. diplomats so as to avoid having to compensate the U.S.'s allies. (laughs) And the U.S. accepted that offer, right, even though it outraged, you know, the other countries. Yeah, I guess we didn't get off to a good start on the corruption front there. Or think about the XYZ scandal that took place in the late 1790s. During the French Revolution, President John Adams sent a delegation to Paris to work out some issues after the French started searching U.S. ships that were en route to England. But the three French diplomats involved wouldn't negotiate unless they were bribed. The U.S. officials refused and returned home. Well, that's good for them, right? But but when big money was involved, there was big scandals. I mean, back now in the 19th century, I think it was 1872, to be precise, you know, the Credit Mobilier scandal, which is that company, you know, was hired to build the Union Pacific Railroad, but it used its stock to bribe top officials in President Grant's administration, right, including the vice president, speaker of the House, members of Congress, you know, all to secure federal support to build a transcontinental railroad. I mean, that was a big one. And then there was Teapot Dome in the early 1920s. President Warren G. Harding, Secretary of the Interior, secretly accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes in exchange for leasing former Navy oil reserves to a private company. And now fast forward to something that happened in our lifetime. Uh, You probably remember, you know, Abscam that happened in the 1970s and the 80s, which, you know, was about seven members of Congress were convicted for taking bribes from what was a, you know, a fictional company, right, set up by the FBI. And of course, most recently, we have the king of corruption himself, Donald Trump. (laughs) who used the presidency in every possible way to enrich himself personally, as did many members of his cabinet. So we think about all these examples that makes us think that is the government just full of fraud and abuse by design? Well, it certainly exists, because where there is power, there will be a subset of people who are going to take advantage of that for their personal gain. And as you mentioned, when that government doesn't do a good job of meeting community needs, the population will be tempted to sort of overlook the corruption or even actively support it on a personal level. If anything, I think corruption on the local level is collectively greater than on the state or national level. It's just that most of us locals don't see it as corruption. Right. But does it fair to say, though, that the classic example of bribery and kickbacks, you know, the ones we just talked about, really doesn't actually happen to the scale people thinks it does. But because of the relative openness of government, we tend to learn about the examples when they do happen. I think that's definitely a factor. And we have to remember that that commitment to transparency came about because of the effects of earlier corruption. It was in response to it. And as we'll discuss a little bit later, there are plenty of examples of the same type of behavior in the private sector. And we can certainly infer that what we know about is only a fraction of what actually goes on because it's behind closed doors. But there are other kinds of public corruption, often on a smaller scale, that we don't appreciate as much. Yes, this is definitely something I wanted to talk about. And it's been in the news more recently because the first thing that jumps out to me, you know, is the fact that elected officials are able to trade stocks. I mean, (laughs) I find that just fascinating and shocking on some level. It's actually shocking that particularly state and federal officials aren't required to do more to mitigate the potential for this kind of corruption. I mean, it's out in the open. I mean, you know, versus I think what should be an obvious solution, like requiring them to all put their assets in a blind trust. Well, you know, no solution is perfect. And I suspect one of the reasons there's opposition to doing things like that is that things like blind trusts can really harm somebody's financial situation. Which in turn, you have to remember, is going to make it far more expensive for them to serve the public. 
The public may not like that because that may deny the community the benefit of expertise they'd otherwise be able to get because it just makes public service too expensive on a personal level. It's a matter of striking some kind of balance, even if an imperfect one. Yeah, I, I get that. But I think we should actually pay our elected representatives more money, but, but at the same time put more restrictions on their activities which harm the public trust, like making money outside that job, you know, through stock trading or anything else. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I don't think we should pass this point by without mentioning, uh, since he's been in the news a lot recently, our good friend uh, down south, Ron DeSantis. <laughs> <laughs> yes, another good example of the, you know, smaller types of corruption that happened, you know. I mean, I think regardless of what you think about immigration policy, this is a man who took public tax dollars to basically pull off a political stunt, clearly meant to just help his own political prospects, right? If that's not waste and abuse of public money, I'm not sure what is. <laughs> I agree. It's a rather extreme example of an old saying in politics that politics is the art of trading money for votes. Another big topic, which requires, I think, its own podcast, which we'll definitely do, is about how our assumption that individualism ought to trump everything directly conflicts with the fact humans require communities to achieve almost everything significant that we do as individuals. That includes allowing public officials to do things that could lead to corruption, right? Like trading stocks, because we aren't willing to pay them enough not to. We allow public officials to act as individuals in ways which harm the community. I mean, think about Ginny Thomas. When we could, as California does with its Brown Act and other legislation, simply restrict those activities. One of my favorite topics, which also will be another good podcast discussion soon, it's our private system of funding elections. I mean, by its nature, it's inherently vulnerable to fraud and abuse. I mean, there's an entire ecosystem devoted to getting personal benefits from the process of electing our public officials, you know, which we could address by publicly funding elections instead. Now let's move on to the third category, spending money on initiatives where there isn't a universal consensus on the objective. And I think this is why this category is the most complicated and nuanced, because herein lies the problem that there is hardly any such thing as a universal consensus. As we've discussed many times, government is designed to serve everyone, unlike businesses that, as we've discussed in other podcasts, can pick their market segments you know, and pick their customers. It reminds me of how my father used to say he was fine with money being spent on public golf courses, despite the fact he had absolutely no interest in golfing, so long as the lakes and picnic grounds he did enjoy were well-funded as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a great example of the fact that government doesn't have to serve everyone the same way, right, to satisfy the demand for its, you know, products, if you will. And that perspective is a good thing, too, because the lack of a common marketplace for public goods and services means it, in practice, is effectively impossible to allocate resources in strictly market economic terms. And I think the ability to come to a consensus is certainly harder as the scope of the governing body gets greater. And I used to joke that in the San Carlos School District, which, again, is a fairly narrow organization, right, in terms of, you know, what we do and who we serve. You know, we got close to everyone agreeing on the same goal. I used to joke that no one ever came up to me and said, you know, I want crappy schools, right? <laughs> I mean, I was usually able to convince someone that we are pretty close to being on the same page in terms of the goal. But I think that's also a bit of an oversimplification. People definitely had different perspectives on what good education should look like. Charter schools are a good example of this, I think. Sure. But when comparing the school board to the city council, you know, which obviously you served on, and these two elected bodies basically serve the same community, I think you saw a real difference in this goal agreement problem because the council was serving a populace with much more widely different visions and goals. That was definitely the case. I think a large part of it, though, was due to the council's mission being broader than the district's. 
The district needs to run schools to deliver the best education possible. The city needs to run fire protective services, law enforcement services, keep the roads in good condition, keep them safe to use, protect pedestrians, encourage and support commercial development. The list just goes on and on. Right. And some people were in favor of, you know, more development while others wanted less development. Some wanted more community services, parks and other things, and some wanted less or or different types of services. I have to say, on a personal level, one of the main reasons I chose to run for the council was because that increased complexity made it a lot more interesting. But that means, though, that there was always a significant subset of the population that didn't agree with any particular initiative that the city, you know, and sometimes the district was taking. Which is why I coined one of my favorite aphorisms. A good public decision is the least bad one. (laughs) For that matter, even when people agree on what should be done, they rarely assign them the same relative priority, which leads directly to perceptions of waste. So I think what we're saying in this category, waste is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder, right? (laughs) You know, I've heard you say that one person's vital public interest is another person's irrelevancy. But I think so long as people thought enough of their desires were met, the overall system wasn't wasteful. Or at least hopefully they wouldn't get exercised about the issue and they just ignore it. But this can happen on a much larger scale as well. So we think about statewide in California, I think about the issue of high-speed rail. And if you are personally not in favor of the state spending money on high-speed rail, then from your point of view, it's a waste of money. Whereas a proponent of high-speed rail will consider it just an investment. And even if you do support high-speed rail for the benefits it may provide you, you may value something else more highly and want to see it move to the front of the line. That's why I think I saw all these build dams, not trains, signs on a recent motorcycle trip across (laughs) the San Joaquin Valley. But we have to recognize that that perspective about the goal is completely independent from whether the money is spent efficiently to achieve its outcome. Regardless of how well the money is managed, if you don't support the outcome in the first place, then it's waste to you. This comes up all the time whenever taxes get discussed. And of course, you know, no one wants to pay more taxes, right? But everyone, well, except maybe the odd billionaire, wants some public services, even if that's just passable roads, safe communities, what have you. And most people do want more than that minimum. But money spent on what an individual wants, by definition, is not inherently wasteful, assuming it's spent relatively efficiently. Conversely, any money spent on what an individual doesn't want is deemed wasteful, at least to start. But it's really all just a reflection of self-interest. And I think another wrinkle here is the time-based nature of many government initiatives. You know, as we've also discussed before, Many government projects either happen over a long period of time or more likely their effect is felt over a long period of time. Which makes their benefits really, really hard to measure. So viewed over a short time frame, they can look wasteful. Building a new school can seem wasteful if you don't need the room now, but it's a successful investment if it builds for the future. But even then, it's not a sure bet and can sometimes be considered wasteful to some degree. I mean, for example, today, there's discussion in San Carlos as to whether or not the two new schools we built were wasteful simply because the anticipated student population growth didn't materialize. However, historically, I would argue the bigger problems in our school district have occurred when we weren't prepared for changes, right, that would come. Seth, I think we've established government can, in fact, be wasteful. But is it a fair critique to throw around accusations of waste, fraud and abuse as frequently as we all seem to enjoy doing? We have to remind ourselves that it tends to be more used as a critique by someone from the right of the political spectrum, right? Often as part of a larger narrative that we need to shrink government, lower taxes, etc. It definitely harks back to Ronald Reagan's framing, right? That government is the problem. Because if that's true, then by definition, its spending must be wasteful. I think a big part of that conservative linkage is because 
they tend to be better off and so need or want less in the way of government services. Because you can even see the same cries of abuse leveled against, say, I don't know, attempts to increase housing stock in an area dominated by liberal single-family homeowners like San Carlos. If you already own a home, you don't need government action to create more homes. But even those who aren't well off, you know, you have the sort of what's the matter with Kansas problem, right? Is that conservatives can get so entrenched in this critique that they could just wind up harming themselves. Even though the right may be where it's more prominent, conservatives by definition tend not to want anything new, let alone new spending. Plenty of liberals, though, cry waste when money is spent on things they don't like, like tax cuts. Sure. But I think regardless of where it comes from, you know, most of these critiques lack specifics or they certainly take things out of context which really just makes them more of a political cudgel. So let's go back to that literal phrase, waste, fraud, and abuse. It does tend to be a better political weapon coming from the right because it fits within this larger narrative we just talked about. You know, for example, Meg Whitman made it a cornerstone of her 2010 run for governor of California. And interestingly, I find some irony here because as we discussed in the totalitarian episodes, the level of corruption on the right side of the political aisle dwarfs the level on the left side, yet it's the right which seems to be always bringing up these issues. There's a funny saying that Republicans like to critique government as inept or corrupt, and then they get elected into office and prove it. (laughs) (laughs) So why has it become more of this political cudgel than an honest critique? For one thing, it's politically useful not to recognize the issues and nuances we've discussed above, even if failing to do so is hypocritical or self-serving or both. Well, that reminds me about the private sector, and we said we'd come back to talking about this a bit, because it's important to remember that even if we don't hear about such mistakes or misconduct in the private sector as much as we do in the public sector, that hardly means it doesn't exist or even exists on a much bigger scale. Think Enron, Lehman Brothers, BP, Halliburton, long-term capital management, the list goes on. And those are just the ones that got caught. Right. And anyone who has any significant business experience, including you and I, has personally witnessed all forms of bad behavior in business. You know, everything from panning expense reports to lying to customers, I mean, to outright fraud. In any organization or community of humans, public or private, there will be those who abuse the system. It just so happens that the private sector is allowed more flexibility about what it can hide and has a lot more tools to hide that kind of abuse. You know, absolutely. I mean, I have personally witnessed all of this bad behavior in my business career. I mean, to be clear, not from me, from others. (laughs) (laughs) But ironically, because I'm also under some non-disclosure agreements, I can't give specifics. I mean, some matters get settled outside of the public eye. Capitalism doesn't really care about corruption, so long as it doesn't interfere with profits too much, doesn't violate a law or two, or make the organization look bad. I mean, specifically, most companies make all employees sign non-disclosure agreements, and there are countless examples of settlements with non-disclosure clauses with former employees who either perform some act of misconduct or accused others of doing so. It goes on. I think the community costs of non-disclosure agreements would make a great podcast topic. If Harvey Weinstein and others couldn't hide away their sexual abuse of women, wouldn't society have become a safer place for women more rapidly? You can't regulate what you can't see. Yes, I agree it would be a good podcast topic because there are also some real potential consequences for victims when settlements are public. So that's something, you know, we need to flesh out in a discussion. But, you know, stepping back, I also find it incredibly ironic when candidates for any public office, but certainly former business people, think Meg Whitman, Mitt Romney, you know, other folks, when they invoke the government is full of waste, fraud and abuse mantra, when they all must have been witness to much greater foibles in their business experience. (laughs) 
But we need to acknowledge part of that perspective is based on the notion that in a business context, it wasn't the community's money to waste. If Google wastes $100 million on corruption, waste, what have you, and I'm not a Google shareholder, why should I care? In fact, if I'm a beneficiary of the corruption and waste, I might actually prefer it. But if you mismanage my taxes, you've harmed me personally because you wasted my money. Yeah, I also think this reflects the different path to optimize outcomes in the public and private spheres, right? Private sector decisions, however complex and challenging they may be, are inherently much simpler to navigate than public sector ones because profit maximization, on paper at least, right, trumps every other internal goal. The public sector has to wrestle with maximizing a multitude of goals simultaneously and over a much longer period of time. And most of those goals, as we've said, have no marketplace to price them against each other to help decide what to do. That inevitably leads to constant arguments about what should be done and how it should be done, all of which supports the waste, fraud, and abuse narrative. Okay, Mark, we've just agreed that, yeah, there is waste, fraud, and abuse <laughs> in government, but not as much and not in the forms that most people think there is, and not in a dissimilar proportion to any human community, you know, including businesses, right, where some people have significant power. And I think we've also agreed that the critique is certainly overused as a political tactic for self-interest. In other words, it's complicated. <laughs> so what do we do about all of it then? Well, it's certainly not about making blanket and hollow accusations, right? Those actually detract from the discussion about real issues, right, that face our community. But we should appreciate that none of what we've discussed should be an excuse to defend poorly performing public institutions or instances where there is indeed waste, fraud, or abuse. Ironically, we can reduce the opportunity for corruption arising by ensuring the government is, in fact, broadly serving the needs of its entire community. Significant unmet community needs, whether it's safety, housing, income stability, what have you, they open the door to being served by corrupt practices. I mean, we should also adopt a more nuanced view of public sector resource allocation. Just because you don't like the way public money is being spent, so as long as enough of your other priorities are being satisfied, you shouldn't get worked up about waste. We should each remember that, unlike businesses, governments have to serve everyone. So every one of us is going to see, inevitably, public spending targeting something that is of little or no use to us as an individual. You know, lastly, Mark, I think a very material thing that we can do is to strengthen government ethics and transparency laws. And, you know, don't make them looser to be more like business, right? <laughs> but in strengthening them, we have to recognize that in some way it will make government less, you know, quote unquote, efficient. But I think that's still a pretty good trade-off. I mean, our current political environment screams that we need to hold our elected officials to a higher ethical standard than, frankly, we've so far allowed. That is as much a truism as anyone has ever spoken. And it's a great <laughs> place to end this podcast, I think. I agree. Well, thanks to you, Mark. And thanks again to our listeners. Signing off, this is Seth. And Mark. Reminding you not to waste your time with other podcasts. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.